Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. It's an elder-led ministry of Believers Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. My name is Duffy Henderson and I'm your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and the benefit of God's people. Here we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly biblical material as we address everyday life questions and issues. If you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thanks again for listening in, and may the Lord bless this episode in particular greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and your benefit. Well, today we are back recording another episode in our series that we started earlier this year, The Old Dead Guys. It's a series that's kind of like a mini-series running throughout the life of the podcast. We're trying to put out one of these per month. And this, I believe, is the fourth installment of the Old Dead Guys series. And today we have a guy that needs no introduction. If you have been a Christian for very long, uh, if you love doctrine and love good preaching, you're likely to already know the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So today, Jason and I are back at the table. Uh, We're just going to give a brief introduction to his life his ministry, some writings that he uh, that you may need to be aware of, and we're just going to encourage you right off the bat. You need to get some stuff from Charles Spurgeon and read about him. It will encourage you. It's a wonderful thing. First of all, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Today. Well, thank you. I'm excited about this episode, Duffy. Though we were talking before we started recording that there's so much information, it's it's a little bit hard to to narrow down to one episode. Uh, of the podcast, and so, as you said, it's going to be brief, meaning it's not exhaustive, it's not comprehensive, it is just going to be an introductory um, episode about Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, uh, just in the preparation for this, there's it was a little overwhelming to think, okay, we've got to fit this into half an hour, where do we even start? Right, right. Um I believe, I'm not entirely certain, but I think that Spurgeon's sermons alone constitute one of the largest single-volume sets of printed material from one man in the history of Christianity. Hmm. Close to it. It's his uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle set of sermons. So when I say that there's an uh, enormous amount of content that we could cover about this man, uh, it's an understatement. Right. There's no telling the number of books that you and I have just in our libraries yes. that have something to do with Spurgeon. Um, it is incredible the amount of uh, written material that they've written on his life, but at the same time, um, well-deserved. I mean, Well-deserved. There's so much about his life because uh, he lived a faithful and... A wonderful life, a a great historical um, example of what a pastor uh, ought to be. Yes, yes. He lived, and we'll go into just a little bit of this later, but he lived in a very difficult time in London. So he was in London, England. He spent his ministry almost 40 years uh, ministering in London. It was a very difficult time of ministry, uh, culturally, societally. And, and all of these things, he, he did not have it easy. And he actually dealt with many, many issues throughout his pastorate. It was by, by, uh, by no means a, an easy time 
or a comfortable time by by earthly standards. No, he was he was a country boy that came to the city of London. London is very unsanitary. There's no child labor laws. There's orphans um, all over the streets. Uh, it's an industrial revolution. So the uh, economy and just the society is very um, fluctuating. Um, lots of change happening. A lot of change. And, and, and of course, you still have your aristocratic kind mm-hmm. of mentality and your Victorian kind of mentality. So that um, it was a very um, eclectic kind of culture. But, but there was not a lot of health and safety laws. And it, it was a very chaotic time. And it was a chaotic time spiritually in one sense. But in another sense, um, one of the things I think that made Spurgeon so well um, loved by the common people is because of who he was. He was just the country boy come to town, and he spoke in the language of the people, the common people. Exactly. And and he didn't speak over their head. He didn't speak in some um, um, scientific kind of way or some way that was... um, not easily absorbed and, and thought about. And so um, if you wanted to go hear an intellectual lecture, you could go to those people. If you wanted to go hear a, a, a monotone sermon read by an educated pastor, you could do that in London at that time. But if you just wanted to hear as a common person uh, the gospel preach clearly with passion and with conviction, you went to hear Charles Spurgeon. Yeah, and, and that drew so many people to him. So again, we're not going to be able to cover even a, a fraction of what we, uh, what we ought to on something like this. But just encourage you, um, with if you've not come across any of his material before, go and find some of his material. It's He's widely in print in many areas. You can find his sermons, his entire sermon uh, set online for free. I've actually personally been benefited greatly by going and uh, wonder what Spurgeon preached on about this text or what he said about this. And you can find all of his sermons online, accessible. You can print them off and it's really nice. A lot of his books are in print um, from various book publishers and that sort of thing. So that would be the encouragement behind the episode right right out of the gate for you. Right. Um, so we're going to just kind of walk through a little bit of his timeline here, Jason and I, uh, just to kind of get things going. Spurgeon lived entire, his entire life in the 1800s. He was born in 1834, and he died in 1892. So he died kind of young, honestly, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, and we'll get to that at the end of this episode. But he, he was born in Kelvedon, Essex, so he, was, he lived his entire life in England, um, and... Uh, he was born into a believing home, uh, a Christian home of sorts. Um, had a decent childhood upbringing, from what I understand. He and was mostly um, raised up, at least in the early part of his years. He was the oldest of 17 children. Oh, that's right. Glad and you brought that up. His parents actually, and we don't know why. Yeah. There's no record, mm. no indication as to why, but his parents sent him to his grandparents to be raised um, in the early formative years of his life. His grandfather was an independent um, pastor and had a, a great library 
And this is where Charles would spend his time reading the old Puritans, yes. Pilgrim's Progress, the book that he read over a hundred times in his lifetime. Yes. Um, the you'll book. actually find, real quickly, if you're perusing through his sermons, you'll find him quoting and referencing the Pilgrim's Progress all throughout his ministry. Right. He read it. He would. He could probably quote most of the Pilgrim's Progress right. verbatim. Right. Whatever. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there. No, that's okay. Remember it. that uh, we did a. Early, I, I believe it, it was, was our the first, first yes. um, Oh Dead Guys uh, episode with John Bunyan, who was the author Correct. of The Pilgrim's Progress. But that was uh, Spurgeon's go-to book, if yes. you will, all of his life. But he first came to it and read it uh, being raised in his grandfather's home. Yeah, he, and he would—he was a prolific reader. I'm glad you mentioned that. He, he found his, his grandfather's collection, and he became a bookworm. He just ate up all that he could uh so he was well versed in high doctrine and theology from a very young age he was consuming this material from the 1600s and the 1700s but he was not converted he, that's true he in his younger age and when you read some of the biographies and we talk about the Oh, dead guys' lives. It seems like many of them came to saving saving faith at an early age, but it was sixteen years. He was sixteen years old when Spurgeon actually was converted. Yeah, yeah, and we'll talk about his conversion in just a minute. That's one of my favorite moments in his whole uh, life story. It's fascinating. Uh, but yeah, so he was inundated with sound doctrine, um, rich biblical teaching, and all of these things through reading these books. From, from the Puritan era and even the Reformation era, and yet he was unconverted. And the Lord, as we all know, the Lord saves whom he wills whenever he wills. And so uh, we fast forward, uh, uh, Spurgeon is, uh, is converted, and uh, he begins his, and I guess we can talk about his conversion in, in a moment, uh, but he also begins preaching at a very young age as well. And he would go on to you know, be a preacher his entire life and a pastor his entire life. Right. Tell the story of the, the conversion. So, yeah, uh, his, his conversion is he was battling, um, we don't know, angst, anxiety, depression, something that was, uh, he, he was on his way to, to church at some point. It was a snowy, a wintry day. Um, and I, this was recounted, I think, in his autobiography and several uh, other places he mentions this. But he made his way, and he I guess he was caught in a snowstorm of some kind, and there was a church nearby that was open, and they were having a church service, and so he went in there to get out of the weather, uh, to my understanding. You can correct me if I'm wrong here. And uh, so he stu- kind of stumbled in, as he, as he says, uh, really not desiring God much. He was kind of, you know... Uh, disgruntled a bit. He was religious. He he was religious. And so it was the duty. It was what he was, it was time to show up to church, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> we can all relate to that, of course. And uh, it just so happens that the pastor of that church was not there that day. And I believe as the story goes, it was just uh, one of the church members. Uh, some man was preaching that morning and who himself, I don't think was a regular preacher. Um, and uh, was preaching a sermon on Isaiah forty-five twenty-two, and toward the end of this sermon, uh, first of all, Spurgeon was captivated by the sermon itself, and at the end, this this pastor 
um, in his meager, humble attempt to uh, evangelize anyone who would be hearing him speak that morning, said, look unto Christ, look to Christ and be saved. And of course, this is taken from the text he was preaching on. And Spurgeon was regenerated. He, the Lord saved him uh, in that moment. And it's just a really, uh, really interesting and really neat um, conversion story. I don't know if you have anything to add there. No, he was, he was um, baptized in May. That would have been uh, 1850 that you're talking about when he was converted in January. He was baptized in May. And he becomes the pastor of Water Beach Baptist Chapel in 1851. So within a year of his conversion, one year, yeah, he he starts pastoring. Wow! And what happened was that I don't remember the pastor's name, but the the pastor asked him to come at his Spurgeon to come preach. And he also asked a second young man to come preach at the same time. And neither knew that this pastor had asked the other. And so they showed up. Yeah. And Spurgeon won, I guess, the the, the draw or the, got the short stick. And he preached. And it was immediately recognized that he had mm-hmm. some exceptional gifts in preaching. Well, and I've, you know, I've mulled this over a little bit. And it's really interesting that the Lord in his sovereignty and in his purpose for Spurgeon's life and ministry, of course, he knew that this was Spurgeon's this plan for Spurgeon to, to become a, this masterful expositor and preacher. But God used his grandfather's library to prime him theologically. So, Spurgeon was preaching a year after he was converted, but you have to think he had already done an enormous amount of theological development intellectually prior to his conversion. Right. And so he had he was now saved, he was reading the Bible with regenerate eyes and and you know preaching those sorts of things and so that's really interesting that he was ready in one sense to kind of give robust sermons right off the right off the bat. Right. Well, and he had no Formal theological education. No. He determined not to do that. Yeah. Oh, that's a fascinating thing too. Yeah, I forgot about that. He determined that it it was not what he needed to do. And and this was, again, another one of those um, measures that God used to um, draw him to the common people. Yes. But nevertheless, no formal education, but just self-educating uh, through the scripture, That's through right. the Puritan writers, and in other writings as well, and and just learned theology, and then was able to communicate that in a very gifted way. Yeah, yeah. So he's a model for any Christian to dive dive deep on your own. You don't have to wait for somebody to feed you as a Christian. Right. Go 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 dig for yourself. You're given a shovel, you know. <laughs> he he's known really as one of the greatest of gospel preachers. Mm. And he wasn't expositional as we think of being expositional today. True. Um he didn't take a, a book of the Bible like Romans and work verse by verse, chapter Correct. by chapter through that whole book, uh, he preached every week on one or two particular verses. Um, Sometimes of, even a phrase of a verse, <laughs> right? Um, right out of a yeah. uh, a book of the scripture, obviously. But yeah. 
he he wasn't expositional in that way, but yet the thing he's known for is his preaching. Yeah. Well, again, he wasn't trained in homiletics. He wasn't trained in, in sermon exposition and sermon crafting. Right. He was reading uh, outside material. He was reading the scripture, and he was formulating sermons in, mm-hmm. in that way. You know, and that's kind of, I mean, God used him in such a powerful way in a unique scenario there. It's just amazing. Right. Within two years of becoming the pastor of the Water Beach Baptist Chapel, um, the church had grown from 40 to 100, something like that. And he was asked to go to preach at the New Park Street Chapel in London for the very first time in 1853. Yes. And this was a high honor in the fact that that chapel, the New Park Street Chapel, had been pastored by Benjamin Keach, John Gill, and the listener may or may not know those names, but these are... um, stars, if you will. Pillars of the Baptist faith. Right. This, Yeah, and I, I, I found that so fascinating. I actually didn't know that. I found that out in my research for this episode. That Because John Gill's systematic theology and Benjamin Keach, specifically those two men, I hold in high regard. Uh, I'm Baptist to the bone. <laughs> and these men are were, were my, my predecessors as a Baptist. Right, Benjamin Keach being one of the original signers of the 1689. Yeah, he was there. He he was uh, one of the guys who was formulating the and crafting the 1689 confession with a bunch of other pastors in in England at the time uh, yeah. in the mid or yeah. in the late uh, 1600s. Right. So, yes. so this would have been well before well Spurgeon, before Spurgeon. obviously. Mm-hmm. But because of the fact that those men had um, pastored there, um, the chapel was uh, at one point just a, a, a historically known as um, a great church and great preaching. By the time that Spurgeon showed up to preach there, the sanctuary could hold 1,200, and there was about 200 in average attendance. Yeah. And little did they know that that was going to start a fire in that little congregation. Right. Um, they called him to be the first, not not the first, but they called him to be a, the, the pastor in 1854. Yeah, and just real quickly, just looking at the timeline, this is incredible. This is roughly four to five at the most years after his conversion. Yes. This is, that's crazy. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, it's not how we would probably go about doing things today. <laughs> no. And immediately the crowds begin to yes. uh, come into the the church and um, the, the preaching ability was um, regularly um, recognized and cheerfully recognized. Within months, 500 people were in regular attendance. In the first year, the, the building couldn't even contain the crowds that were coming to hear his preach. The, the chapel was enlarged to seat 1,500 with standing room of 500. Uh, and still the people were jamming in, um, trying to hear. They were lined up on the walls. They were lined up down the aisles. They were crammed into the window frames. Uh, and so then the church started issuing these tickets for admission um, to 
just the midweek service, not Sunday service. Wow. And that uh, is incredible. The streets were blocked for traffic. Um, the neighborhood all around was just shut down so that people could come and hear him preach. And what a, a, a he, testimony. He took London by force yes. in, in this way. I mean, yes. he was, God used him in such a powerful way to bring a fresh desire for the things of God. And most of all, he was preaching the Bible to these people. He wasn't giving them hot again. Uh, now, I have to say this. If you read through his sermons, they are full of sound and rich doctrine. But he wasn't preaching in such a way that it was high doctrinal treatises right. uh, in the form of sermons. He was giving this robust theology but through the ordinary language, it was just this wonderful mix of, uh, of the two kind of the two best things all in one. Right. It's in the midst of all of this growth and all of yeah. the popularity of uh, him as a pastor, as a preacher, that he met a lady by the name of Susanna Thompson. Yes. And she was a member of the congregation. And uh, their love story is pretty um, unique. Do you remember how they how they met and what Susanna thought of him at she, the beginning? I know she didn't think much of him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she had her uh, she had some very negative thoughts about Spurgeon the first time that they met. She thought that he was very arrogant and not very attractive <laughs> looking at the very beginning. Right. And little did they know the Lord would put them together, and it's, it's a neat story. Right, it really is. And we won't have time to go through sure. all the um, the story of their love story, but there's two books I would recommend. Please do, recommend. That, that would help you to um, read about Susanna and Charles's love story. The first one that I would recommend, and Stacy and I were uh, reading through this one, and we got sidetracked and we haven't finished, Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. And this is by Ray Rhodes. And um, it's a lot of their letters and how they wrote back and forth. Because during his ministry, they were separated a lot. Because in 1856, she gave birth to twin boys. One uh, of Otis was Charles. The second one was Thomas, uh, named after... Thomas in the scripture called the twin and um, from about that point on it was, it's really sad because Susanna became semi-invalid and then later just increasingly became uh, yes. bedridden yeah but that's one book that I would recommend yours till heaven the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon the other book that I would recommend to you is just called Susie the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon wife of Charles H. Spurgeon. And again, this is by Ray Rhodes. And so both of these are recommended to you. I'm about uh, halfway through the book. <laughs> a, good, a good pastor. You've got bookmarks halfway through both of those. Yes, I do. <laughs> totally relatable. Uh, yes. I've got uh, 40. Along, <laughs> along with the other 56 that I have on exactly. my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> We're good about that, aren't we? Yes. I've but, read half of that book. <laughs> But they're worth reading. They're worth reading. Yeah. And uh, if uh, if I didn't have um, a lot of other prep, I would probably be a little more diligent and faithful. But the point is that they married. It's a wonderful love story. She was always supportive of him, even though her health was 
really bad. His health was bad as well. And we can talk about that more in just a moment. But their love story, their marriage is really exemplary. It is one that um, you could uh, look at and read about and think that's how it ought to be because they loved each other greatly. They were deeply in love with one another. Mm -hmm. She took care of him. He took care of her whenever whenever he could. She really modeled what it was to be a godly wife and a godly woman, um, mm-hmm. a pastor's wife, and, and all of the ways that a pastor needs a wife to be, from what I've heard and what I've read. So I've read, I think, a little less than what you have about her, but I've heard nothing but, but um, wonderful things about her, even in, in spite of the, both of their health condition. Right. One of the things that's unique about her is that she started a book fund. That's right. And that book fund was a, a collection of um, books that she uh, provided free to pastors who came through Spurgeon's College. And we haven't talked about all that. But these pastors would go and start various churches or be involved in already um, uh, established churches. And to provide them a library, uh, she would gather these books and she would uh, give those books to her, uh, yeah, she, to, to those pastors. She was on the kind of the, uh, Spurgeon was doing all of his public ministry. He was involved in so many ministries, uh, uh, societally, like orphanages and helping uh, the poor and different things like that. And uh, Susie was kind of getting things going, like getting his publications out and all of these books, she wanted resources to be given out. And so this kind of this dual arm thing, mm-hmm. that it's really fascinating. It really is. But that's how one way that we can know that she supported his ministry. Yeah. And again, um, wonderful love story. But one of the things that characterizes their marriage and Spurgeon's ministry is a lot of controversy. He didn't seek it out. And he wasn't the initiator of it on purpose. He just faithfully preached. And the um, controversy found him. The controversy found him wherever he was preaching. For his whole ministry had, if he wasn't in one controversy, he found himself in another controversy. Right. And we'll go ahead and say this. He was, he, one of his heroes was John Calvin. Uh, one of the things that he enjoyed most about his uh, life was that he got to go and preach in Geneva and stand and preach in the pulpit that John Calvin preached at. And he, um, because he was um, a big follower of John Calvin, um, he was Calvinistic in his soteriology so that the doctrines of grace formed his understanding of how God sovereignly works to bring a person to salvation. And uh, he believed that not because John Calvin preached it, but he saw it in the scripture and he followed that diligently. And that brought controversy to him in the sense of um, he was considered a hyper-Calvinist, if you can believe that. A hyper-Calvinist is one who would say, in short, um, God has already ordained everything. It's set in stone, so don't don't worry about any 
process or any means of grace. Yeah, a hyper-Calvinist would simply reject any call to the unregenerate to come to faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. No evangelistic call because God has, quote, uh, already, he, the elect are his already, so there's no need to preach to the lost in that sense. Right. Uh, you know, f to one degree or another, that's what the hyper-Calvinist position would be. So it would be, uh, it would be um, uh, no missions, no evangelism. You just preach to the, the people that you know to be regenerate, and that's the whole, that's all you do. Right. You know? And which was... Um, an odd accusation against Spurgeon because Spurgeon was such a gospel preacher. He was the opposite of that. He was. He was the, every sermon he preached had the gospel in it. You know, he, he, he himself said, I, I start with Jesus and, you know, make a beeline to the cross. Um, or I start with the text and then make a beeline to the cross because he was so um, compassionate and concerned about the souls of men. He was deeply concerned about the souls. Right. He was a soul-winning preacher. Right. The definition of a soul-winning preacher, to right. use the old language. So one of the first controversies that he was involved in when he came to England, again, when he came, remember that the upper clergy, um, even the press, were so adamantly against him. And his popularity and the number of people that were coming to hear him preach caused this animosity, this jealousy, if you will, so that the press and the the upper clergy were always against him. And well, that's one, one reason why there was this accusation of hyper-Calvinism. That started as early as 1855. That's when he really, um, a couple of years into his um, pastorate at New Park Street Chapel. So that was one controversy, and one of the books I could recommend to you is called Spurgeon versus Hyper-Calvinism, The Battle for Gospel Preaching, and this is Ian Murray. Is that a Banner of Truth book, I believe? Yes, it's uh, a Banner of Truth book. Banner of Truth, mm -hmm. um, that, that's one I got to read. Yes. I haven't read that one yet. I yeah. need to. Yes, this is on my <laughs> shelf, and um, one that I haven't, read as well, but I recommend it to you because I think this would help us to understand better what was going on at the time that Spurgeon was was preaching. Now, um, other controversies that we could talk about, I guess we could get further into the timeline, but um, he, um, he, was, he was involved in probably most famously um, the downgrade controversy, which basically was, he, he was battling um, theological liberalism. Yes. In which the, the liberal clergy began to um, downgrade the authority of Scripture. And so it's called the downgrade. It's a battle for the Bible, the yes. authority of the Bible, yeah. the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. That was really the, the final controversy that he was involved in, uh, that he, he said, and many of his biography, uh, biographers and uh, contemporary friends uh, said that was the controversy that killed him. Yeah. Uh, literally, um, because of the stress and the strain that it put on him emotionally, mentally, physically, 
to, to make that stand. Yeah, and this would have been in the 1880s. And so Spurgeon was in his 50s, uh, if my timeline is, is accurate there. And uh, again, he died at a relatively young age, but part of that was the downgrade controversy, but that only accentuated the stress and the anxiety and the, if you've ever been in any sort of controversy, it uh, it places a toll on you. And you can imagine being in the public eye uh, in the, in I mean, in London, this is a this was the metroplex of the world in some sense, and uh, he's right front and center in this mega controversy, trying to defend the the authority of Scripture and, and the Bible, and he was at the same time also battling physical health issues. He had a really bad case of gout. I know that. And I can't remember a couple of other things. You may be able to recall a couple of other health issues. Well, he was overweight. He had kidney, some kind of kidney disease. Yeah. He um, battled depression, clinical depression. Yes. Oh, I forgot. Yes, of course. One writer said that he would be, in our culture today, he would be diagnosed as bipolar and treated with medication. Yes. I don't know that that's, you know, how we need to think about it, but... Um, he did battle depression. There would be times when he would would cry and did not did know. not know why he would be just broken about something, you know, in his study or in his home, and, mm-hmm. and you know, Susie would be there to attempt to comfort him. But yes, she would come in and find him laying on the floor, face down, crying. Uh, in his public ministry, he was seen as this popular, well-loved pastor, preacher. But at home, he battled this depression constantly, a severe depression, with Susie trying to comfort him, her and her own physical needs and and, um, health problems. And yet, even in the midst of all that, he was so prolific in his production, his writing. He started the Spurgeon College, which I mentioned earlier. He, that became um, really uh, a very huge part of his legacy. He started that in 1857, and um, he started the Boys orphanage in Stockwell, the Stockwell Orphanage in yes. 1867. He started the Girls Orphanage in 1879. But he ministered to the poor. He ministered to the widows. And these were the things that he did socially coming from the country and into the city, seeing all the needs of the city and the, the people that lived there. He said, what do we need to do? What can we do? to serve these people with the aim of ultimately sharing the gospel with them. Yeah, and, and we do need to wrap this episode up. There's so much more that we could talk about, but we've we missed, we need to back up for just a moment that we mentioned that he uh, pastored basically in the same pulpit for I think around 30, 38 years. 38 years. So it began as the New Park Street pulpit or the New Park Street Church. And that, of course, had a long history back into the 1600s uh, with Keach and Gill. But uh, he was involved with 
they relocated into a new, uh, larger uh, sanctuary or, or worship center, as we maybe call it now, a new church building, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And I remember reading through this that he actually was involved even with the naming of it, and he wanted it to be, he wanted the name even Metropolitan Tabernacle to evoke this sense of he wanted to reach every orifice of the London area and that surrounding area with the gospel. Uh, from the orphan to the high, uh, he wanted to reach everyone. That was kind of the, the name of the church. Uh, he, that was his desire to reach that entire area. Well, he used the word tabernacle because of its temporary nature. Exactly. Th- yes. This is temporary. We're, yes. we're, we're going to an, uh, a better city, a new city. Yes. We're going to a, a new Jerusalem. And so we're gathered in this uh, tabernacle with all of these different people from every social um, area, you know, every, every social level, economic level, educational level. It is metropolitan, but it's temporary. Yes, yes. And so the New Park Street Church became the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and that's where he spent the rest of his life in ministry. He died uh, preaching there. Um, well, and he preached his last sermon there in 1891. There you go. And then he died in 1892. The very next year. Yeah, in yeah. January 1892. Yeah. And he had actually the, the men who uh, succeeded him uh, were also p- some published writers. Uh, there were some very famous names that came after him, maybe less famous. Uh, but I do know that, that that chain of faithful Bible preaching continued even after his uh, his death and after he passed on, which is a testament to the faithfulness of God right. in that city. He was very um, um, well-loved, very um, requested to come and preach. And he preached all over the continent of Europe and, and um, in various places and certainly in London, as we've been talking about. But it's interesting, he never went to the United States. Fascinating. He, I actually didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Wow. He, never, he, he never, never made it across? No. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. But I do know that he was extremely influential in the United States with, yes. with Baptist pastors and men in, right. in America. Yes. What kind of books do you recommend, Duffy? Okay. If we yes. wanted to read we, about him. We've got to wrap this one up. Right. We do. Uh, thank you for staying with us this long <laughs> on this historical journey to, through Spurgeon's <laughs> life. Okay. So I brought one book. Uh, that I would say was extremely beneficial for me. It really uh, just, it's one of those books that I keep on my shelf. I actually reference it often. I will pull it off and flip through a couple of pages, look at what I've highlighted. It's called All of Grace. All of Grace. And Spurgeon wrote this, I don't know when uh, in his ministry, but he published a lot of books, many books. Mm -hmm. This is one where he just recounts uh, a very warm presentation of the doctrines of grace and the the whole um it's a robust treatment of it so uh, regeneration and conversion and faith and repentance and all of these different aspects uh, it's a wonderful treatment so that's what i would recommend i have a hardback <coughs> devotional copy that's a, a new copy uh, by B&H Books. It was printed probably in the last five to seven years. It's relatively new, but there are many of d- editions of this book that are out there. Uh, so I would recommend All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. Right. What do you have? Any any others? Well, um, I have the autobiography that he wrote, 
um, of himself on my shelf, and I would recommend that. Oh, I would, oh can I oh, can I jump in? There's yes. another one that I just thought about. I've got to recommend letters to my students. Oh yes, that's, um, one, that's to, one I was going to mention. Oh, I'm sorry, I stole your no, thunder. That's okay. Uh, if you're a man uh, or an interest, someone interested in pastoral ministry <coughs> or thinking about discerning a call to ministry, uh, that would be a great one to read through. And you can hear uh, Spurgeon's heart come out uh, to men who would then go on to preach and teach the gospel. So right. The Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray is one that would be um, worth reading if you, as a reader, would like to read uh, particularly about his controversies that he was involved in. We mentioned the downgrade controversy that was 1887 to 1891. We didn't mention the baptismal regeneration debate that was raging particularly in 1864 uh, we did mention the hyper Calvinism debate that he was involved in in 1855 uh, he was always battling the liberalism and the fashionable gospel uh, of the day but uh, not, forgot, not the much has changed Spurgeon. no <laughs> not much has changed right right, right. <laughs> the forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray wonderful good good well Jason, thanks for taking the time to kind of put some content together for this episode. There's so much more we could have covered. And listener, I hope this episode has been helpful to you. That's all that we have today for uh, episode four of the Old Dead Guys series. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. We hope it's been a blessing to you. Before you go, don't, uh, don't forget to like and share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. And lastly, as always, submit a question to us if you have something that uh, comes to mind as you're listening to one of these episodes and you're like, hey, I'd love for them to talk about this or that uh, on a, a future episode. You can contact us through our website, bbcemory.org. Go to our media tab and there's a place on that uh, webpage to submit us a question or uh, offer us content for a future episode. But until next time, grace and peace be with you all.